Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. All right, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You bow your heads with me. Father, we do come now and we uh, ask your blessing on our time and your word. I pray this morning that as we think about these fruits of the Spirit, Lord, that we will be encouraged and reminded by the fact that you are the one doing this in us, but that we will also be exhorted to remember that we, we participate, that we're a part of this, that there's a holy tension here that, that's playing itself out in our daily lives, and we want to see that, and we want to participate, and we want you to work, and we want you to work out the life of Jesus in and through us, and so may that be clear to us this morning, we ask in his name, amen. Well, we're going to start this morning with a little bit of history because nothing says I'm ready to learn about Jesus, like a little quick history lesson, right? I think that's pretty standard. Uh, I've shared this with us in the past, though I think it has been almost 10 years. So if you were here 10 years ago and you remember this, I'm really impressed by your memory. Good job. Uh, I apologize for repeating it, but if you weren't here 10 years ago uh, or you are, uh, have forgotten it, then this will be hopefully new to you. We'll start with a quick little quiz, okay? I want you to think about... Uh, the Protestant Reformation for just a moment here. Just celebrated the 500th anniversary of that recently, so it's probably on your mind, or at least you heard about it at some point. And I want you to think about the Protestant Reformation, and I want you to think of the number one name, the biggest name that comes to your mind when you think about the Protestant Reformation. Okay, does everybody have a name in mind? I'm going to, on the count of three, we're all going to say it together. Whatever you thought of is what you're going to say. Ready? One, two, three. What's your name? Okay. I didn't know what you said. Never mind. Uh, yeah, I heard Luther. I think I heard Calvin. I may even have heard a Zwingli in there. Uh, didn't hear any uh, Hubmeyers. Balthasar Hubmeyer, the famous Anabaptist reformer. None of you have heard of him? Uh, all right. Anyway, so uh, yeah, there's a bunch of different names you could have said. All of these guys played a major role in the Protestant Reformation and to varying degrees and to varying uh, levels of impact as they were trying to break away from the authority and control of the Catholic Church. Now, obviously, as you think about the Protestant Reformation, there are a few names that stick out as being a little bit more important or significant than some of the other names. Uh, for example, I heard a lot of Luther's. 
Uh, Martin Luther, clearly the biggest, most influential name of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, you know, we just, like I said, celebrated the 500th anniversary of him uh, nailing the 95 Theses to the church door there in Wittenberg, which I promise you, on the day it happened, nobody cared, right? Nobody thought a thing about that. Uh, the church door was like a big community bulletin board, and so he went up there and he posted a notice. Think of it as like the Craigslist of the 1500s, right? And so nobody paid attention to it, but at the same time, it was that act and the things that began to come out of that that eventually led to the Protestant Reformation as we think of it today. So it's kind of a significant moment. And from the perspective of American Christianity, uh, the fruit of his work lives on today in the Lutheran denomination. If you know anyone who's Lutheran, uh, they are coming directly from Luther, right? They get their name from him, their theology, a lot of their practice, all directly from him. So he's a big name. Uh, another big name of the Reformation I heard there was John Calvin. Uh, Calvin lived in the area of France and Switzerland uh, about the same time as Luther. Uh, I would say that Calvin was more of the, like, the theologian of the Reformation. That's not to say that Luther was not a theologian. He definitely was, but, but this is more like Calvin's focus uh, during that time. And again, from the perspective of American Christianity, the fruit of his work lives on today. Uh, anyone who's from a Presbyterian or a Reformed background would draw some of their origins back to uh, either directly or indirectly to Calvin. So uh, he's kind of important. But there's another big name of the Reformation that very few people ever really think of, uh, which is kind of funny, particularly here in America, because I would say that the majority of the American church actually finds its origin story in this third reformer, not in the first two, yet no one seems to think of him. And that reformer would be none other than Henry VIII. Now, most people don't think of Henry VIII as being a reformer. And yet, to make this very personal for us here at Cornerstone, the reason that we are sitting in this room this morning is because of this guy, not so much the other two. I'm speaking a little bit tongue-in-cheek. You see, it all goes back to the marriage, uh, his marriage to his first wife, Catherine of Aragorn. Catherine uh, was a member of the French royal family, and she had been married to Henry's brother, uh, Arthur, I think it was, until Arthur died. And when Henry was about to become king at the age of 17, he thought it would make good political sense for him to marry his dead brother's wife so that he could keep that connection to the French royal court. But, but the thing that Henry wanted more than anything else, more than his connection back into France, was a male heir. He wanted a son to whom he could pass on the, the throne, the Tudor dynasty, to keep that line going. And unfortunately for Catherine, uh, this was something that she was unable to deliver, pun intended. All right. Give me a break. I'm a dad. All right. All uh, right. You know, in time, because she couldn't give him a male child, Henry decided that the only path forward for this, for him to have another option, was for them to have the marriage annulled. And that wasn't quite as easy back then as it is today, particularly when you're talking about the British and French royal families and when the Pope himself is involved. You see, uh, at the time, both France and England were very loyal to the Catholic Church. Henry was a staunch Catholic uh, most of his life. In fact, because Catherine was his brother's wife, he had to get a special permission slip, so to speak, from Pope Julius II, who was Pope at the time, in order to marry her in the first place. So the, the Pope and the Catholic Church had been involved in this marriage and this union from the very, very beginning. And so now, you know, when it's time for him to try to find a way out of the marriage, he can't just, you know, walk down to the courthouse and then, you know, 
files for divorce right there. And he has to go back to the Pope, who's now Clement Seventh, and he has to ask him for an annulment so that he can go and marry Anne Boleyn in hopes that any child he has with Anne Boleyn will eventually be the King of England. That's his overall plan. Uh, when he goes to Clement, Clement, the Pope, is not particularly fond of the idea of giving him an annulment. And it wasn't because uh, the Catholic Church or Pope Clement really had, I think, a major issue with divorce. It was because uh, Catherine is the aunt of Charles V, who is the Holy Roman Emperor at that point, the same guy who one year prior had invaded Rome, taken the Pope captive for a time, and kept him for a little while before putting him back in office. Clement was scared of Charles. That's really what it was about, okay? He was scared of Charles V. He didn't want to make him mad. And so, you know, here comes Henry. Hey, can I have a divorce? And he's like, oh, no, God says no. No today. No, for you anyway. Um, pause that little story. Simultaneous to all of these events going on across the channel, the Protestant Reformation is unfolding in Europe. And so Luther and the gang, you know, they're doing their thing, and there are people within the Church of, of England, not the Church of England at that point, but within the English church, who are looking across going, man, we want to reform the church too. Some people who were serious about the gospel and about understanding the scriptures and getting back to biblical Christianity, getting away from the Catholic church, but they don't really have anywhere to go because they don't have anyone in power who's on their side and it's just a really difficult situation. Well, to make a long story short, one of Henry's advisors comes to him one day and says, hey, Henry, guess what? I don't know if you've heard, but there's a, a reformation happening across the water and uh, maybe that's something we should look at because if we reform our church and we break away from the Catholic church, then we could form our own little church of England. You could become the head of it. You could grant yourself a divorce and problem solved. And all of a sudden, Henry felt very compelled by God to lead a reformation in England. And he got together with the parliament and they officially separated uh, the Church of England from the Catholic church, creating the Anglican church. And the rest of Henry's story is, as they say, history. Now, obviously, Henry did not have any real biblical motivation for what he was doing. All of his motivation was personal and political and selfish. Uh, and yet, there were true reformers within the English church who, when finally given this amazing opportunity, were ready to jump all over it. And they took that opportunity, and they did a great deal of good within the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and bringing it around and trying to make it more biblical. Uh, and in time, they were fairly successful, and there's a number of really great Anglican pastors from the past that we can still read and benefit from today. In fact, I read you a letter, a partial letter from one of them just a few weeks ago, John Newton's letter. Newton was Anglican. He, he was one of that group who was trying to reform things and see things come around the right way and be more biblical. Uh, and so there was a number of good folks in the Church of England at that time. But in time, like so many uh, churches and denominations and movements before it, you know, things don't always seem to go the way you hope, right? And in not too long of a period, the Church of England began to experience a lot of deadness, a lot of spiritual lethargy, a lot of coldness, and people became um, dissatisfied with the formality and the sterileness of it. And so there were some groups that began to emerge, groups like the Puritans and the Separatists. Have you heard those names before? Uh, the Puritans were the ones who wanted to stay in the Church of England and purify it. 
make it holy again, make people like zealous for the Lord again. The separatists are like, it's not worth our effort. Let's get out and we'll go do our own thing. So these are the groups who eventually become like the Baptists, the Mennonites, the Amish are all like different variations of folks who ended up leaving. And so you have this going on. In that time period, one of the folks who was trying to purify the church is a young man named John Wesley. And you've probably heard Wesley's name. Uh, Wesley was very zealous to see uh, real personal holiness and, and spiritual growth be pursued from people within the church. And so he began to put together basically a little Bible study of guys who were interested in doing the same thing. And they met so methodically that eventually they were made fun of by people and were called Methodist. So that's the origin of the Methodist denomination. Um, Wesley did a lot of good. The early Methodist church did a lot of good. But eventually, as I said already, you know, things tend to happen. You tend to decline. And the Methodist church also experienced a decline in spirituality. And so again, a group of people arose within Methodism who, seeing all the lethargy and the coldness around them, wanted to pursue personal holiness and real spiritual growth again. And so they formed a little movement called the Holiness Movement. Uh, it wasn't, I think, just limited to Methodism, but it was primarily there. And this, this movement was just trying to do the same thing that Wesley had done years prior. Let's pursue Jesus. Let's get back to personal holiness. Make spiritual, our spiritual lives real and vibrant again. Except they had one little problem. One little question that kept nagging at them as a group. And that question was, how do we know when we've achieved holiness? Like, if that's our stated goal, let's be holy. We want... This kind of holiness that, that we haven't seen in a long time in the church, how will we know when we've achieved it? Um, and at least for some people within that movement, as they began to ask that question, the answer they came to was found in Acts chapter 2, and that was through the speaking in tongues that they read about there, and thus modern Pentecostalism was born. That's the origin story of, of Pentecostalism, and then eventually that proceeded on into the charismatic movement, which has spread to many, many different denominations. And both of those groups, uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics, have had a huge impact on, on American and worldwide Christianity, even for people who would not identify themselves as being either of those two things. I just kind of wanted you to hear where all of that came from. So, you know, in, in terms of the impact they've had, for example, if I were to ask you, or any room, really, for this matter, I think it wouldn't really matter where I was at, to, in your mind, begin to think through and explain, you know, be able to explain to me or to yourself even, how the Spirit works in this world, inevitably, I would have a few people in any size room I'm in probably begin to answer that question by saying, well, the Spirit works through things like speaking in tongues, through, you know, healings, through miracles, etc., they, they would instantly, in their mind, go to the very observable phenomena that have been you know, mainly broadcast and emphasized over the last 20, 30, 50 years of the American church experience. And they're doing that in part because that's what's been highlighted for them by so many churches, ministries, pastors, etc. You know, I said this a little bit a few weeks ago, but it's the guy who stands up on a stage and he takes a suit coat off and begins to hit people and they begin to fall over who gets all the attention right, in the American church. And so people watch that, and they go, well, see what this guy's doing? He looks awesome. That must be how the Spirit works. Or it's the church who says that they've got, like, gold dust and angel feathers falling from heaven on them in their services. And so they're like, well, that's awesome. God's clearly there. This must be how the Spirit works. Or it's the revival preacher 
who is able to get people down on all fours barking like dogs and sometimes to have their teeth miraculously filled with gold and silver fillings, supposedly, that is then somehow emphasized as being a real you know, messenger of God, and therefore that must be how God works, how God's Spirit works. And all of those examples, by the way, are real, genuine examples of the kinds of things I'm talking about. Just, you know, I could have given you other ones that were a little bit even weirder than some of those, but you know, there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians, and I don't doubt they are. I'm just A lot of people, they not only accept these kinds of things as being the genuine work of the Spirit, but they begin to then look at those kinds of things as being the main way in which the Spirit works. It's like if you really want to know if the Spirit's working, then this is the kind of stuff you should be looking for. This is the kind of stuff you should be expecting, these amazing observable phenomena. Well, let me just you know say, and this won't come as a shock to anyone who's been in the room for the last few months, this is not my understanding of how the Spirit mainly works. Um, do I believe that God works miracles? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I don't know who would deny that or why you would want to deny that. So God can do anything he wants anytime he wants. But when I'm trying to ask the question of, you know, what is it that I expect to see on a daily basis in terms of the spirits working in my life, in your life, in our church, in community groups or whatever, is that what I'm looking for? That kind of, that kind of stuff, those observable phenomena, or am I looking for something different? Well, you know, here in Galatians 5, Paul is contrasting for us what life in the flesh and life in the spirit looks like. And last week we saw what life in the flesh looks like. In verses 19 to 21, Paul gives us a representative, not an exhaustive, but a representative list of the kinds of things that our flesh wants to do. Remember that our flesh is actively opposed to God. It, it, it does not want to please him. It wants to displease him. It wants to dishonor him. Uh, it is in constant rebellion to God and cannot be subject to him. So there is nothing good in us that wants to please God. There is nothing in us that naturally wants to fight against the flesh. The natural inclination of our heart is to do what God does not want us to do. So then, if that's true, and it is true, how do we fight this thing called the flesh? You know, what's, what's the antidote? Well, in verse 16 here, Paul told us that we have to walk by the Spirit in order to not gratify the desires of the flesh. Uh, the Spirit is the antidote. So only as we are living our life in the Spirit will we experience any victory over our flesh. But what exactly will a life lived in the Spirit look like? That's the question for us this morning. Well, Paul's description of this does not exactly match what I think many, many churches and pastors and ministries around us would necessarily seem to indicate. He says here in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and I want us to stop right there and notice a change from the previous verse, and that change here is the word fruit. Um, when we talked about the flesh, Paul didn't use the word fruit there. He used the word works. And the word works carries with it the connotation that we are actively involved in something. These were the things we did. We actively engaged in sexual immorality. We were pursuing impurity. We were pursuing sensuality, et cetera, et cetera. So to, so to talk about the works of the flesh made it very clear that we were actively engaged in that process. But here, he switches to the word fruit, and, and that's not an insignificant change in the text because to talk about the fruit of something 
indicates that that thing, whatever it is, is what's producing it, okay? So, like, for example, a few years ago, back now, probably five years ago, uh, we owned this little miniature indoor orange tree, okay? I don't even remember why we got this thing, but we had this little miniature indoor orange tree, and it, uh, it never did very well. I think in our best season, we got um, one orange off of it. I believe it was, the full, you know, it was a bumper crop, uh, fed our whole family for about five minutes. We were thanking God for the bountiful harvest. And, uh, you know, we look at this orange, and we're like, I, we didn't make the orange, right? The tree made the orange. And the orange is a fruit of the orange tree. It was in our house, but believe me, we did nothing to help it out. Uh, that's all it was. And so when, when Paul says here, and he switches words to, to the fruit instead of works, it's, it's not an accidental thing. It's a, it's a purposeful thing. When it comes to those negative, sinful uh, components of our flesh, those are works. These are things we are actively pursuing and engaging in. But when it comes to the positive, righteous things of the Spirit, those, those are not our works. Those are the Spirit's works. Clearly His. Those are His fruit, the natural produce of Christ's life within us. Now, having noted that, let's also notice the same thing that we noted several weeks ago and that I reminded you of last Sunday, and that is that just like with the listing of the works of the flesh in verses 19 to 21, um, as you look through this uh, list here of the fruit of the Spirit, this list is also not meant to be exhaustive. It's representative. Uh, and you can, I think, think through that on your own pretty easily. He gives eight different things in verses 22 and 23 that the Spirit does. And if you look at that, you should instantly see, well, some things are missing. Like, for example, where's truth? Isn't Jesus the truth? Didn't we even just sing that a few moments ago? So if the Spirit of Jesus is within me, wouldn't I have truth as one of the fruits of the Spirit? Uh, what about mercy? Would mercy not seem to be a very natural and biblical fruit of the Spirit? How about forgiveness? Would forgiveness not be a very natural, expected fruit of the Spirit? So, so, you know, this list here is not including everything the Spirit can do, but that's okay. It's not meant to be exhaustive again. It's meant to be representative. And kind of like with the works of the flesh that Paul listed above, something in me wonders if as he's sitting down and he's writing out his list here of the fruits of the Spirit, He's, if he's not thinking about the Galatian situation going, you know what they really need here because of all the problems they're having? They really could use some love and some joy and some peace and some patience and some kindness and some goodness. And, you know, if he's not thinking about their scenario and writing down the things that, that he thinks would help them with their current situation. I can't prove that. I don't know for sure if that's right, but I suspect that this may be the case. So having noted both of those things, let's just take a quick look here at the fruits he lists. This will go really, really fast, I think. He begins, first of all, with love. And I feel like we've already dealt with this one pretty in-depth, but I'll just point out a couple of things. First of all, remember John 13, verses 34, 35, where Jesus says that love is the true mark of Christian discipleship. It says that by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another as I have loved you. Uh, you can think of 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul indicates that love is better than you know, all the gifts, it's better than the most eloquent speech you can imagine. It's the pinnacle of it all. So that love comes first here is not surprising to me. But what is really important to note about this is that the kind of love Paul is talking about here is not derived from our emotional state or even from a volitional choice. This is from the Spirit. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul talks about how God's love has been poured out into our hearts by his Spirit who he's been given who has been given, into, uh, given to us. This is a divine, 
Christ-like love we're talking about here. A love that can love the unlovely. A love that can love someone who doesn't deserve it. Maybe even a love who can love someone who doesn't want it. It's really easy for us to love people that are lovely to us. Or to love people that love us back. It's a lot harder to love someone who you don't really like. And who doesn't deserve or even want your care. That kind of love comes only from the Holy Spirit within us. Next, you have joy. A good definition for this word is a calm delight, because I think sometimes we hear the word joy and we think like exuberant excitement, right? Like, I'm so happy I have cancer. Nobody says that, right? Because that's not the kind of joy he's talking about here. This is the kind of joy that can look at any situation, no matter how good and bad, and understand that God is in control and that he's going to take care of you. He's the good father who takes care of us. So Paul tells us in Romans 14, 17, that we derive peace and joy from the Holy Spirit. Throughout the New Testament, you see it can be experienced regardless of circumstances. Second, uh, First Thessalonians, we're told to rejoice always. Second Corinthians 6, Paul says he's sorrowful yet always rejoicing. He's not jumping up and down because of his sufferings, but yet he has a real joy that comes directly from the Spirit. Number three, you have peace, uh, often tied with uh, the concept of joy by Paul. As in Romans 14, 17, the passage I just mentioned, uh, peace has the, the connotation of rest, of tranquility, of the absence of strife. This is what we now have with God. Romans 1, we were under his wrath, but now because of the gospel, we have peace with God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 5. And, and one of the outworkings of that peace is that it can also be experienced between us. So, you know, here we are within a church, a room full of people, different backgrounds, different races, different countries you come from, cultures, gender, economic strata, and yet we can be one, at peace with one another. And it's funny to me, the very thing the world says it wants so badly, it can't find because they're not looking here. <laughs> they're not looking at the church and at what Jesus does in us by and through his spirit. That kind of unity only comes with the spirit. Number four is patience. I like this definition of the Greek word here a lot. It's a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune, and without complaint or irritation. In other words, endurance. Okay? It's the ability to endure. In the midst of any difficult situation, person, stage of life, that's a work of the Spirit. Next, kindness. This is just simple benevolence or generosity. This is the word used to describe God's goodness to us in giving us his Son. He shows his kindness to us. Uh, and waiting for us to repent. In the same way that God was kind to us, we're to be kind to others. Next, goodness. It's just a word for moral virtue, just morality. I mean, where are you going to find real morality? Not in the law, but that's something the Spirit is going to do in us to make us genuinely moral, genuinely have a sense of right and wrong with the desire to pursue the right for all the right reasons. So goodness is going to characterize someone living in the Spirit. Next, faithfulness. It means just what it says loyalty or faithfulness to God and others. Next, gentleness. Uh, this word has to do with one's demeanor. They're gentle, they're mild, they're meek, they're not harsh, they're not abrasive. This is how we're told to treat those who are caught in any sin, to treat them with a spirit of gentleness. Jesus is given as an example here. And then finally, self-control. This word isn't used a lot in the New Testament, but it just means to have mastery over oneself or one's desires, to not be a slave to yourself, but to be the master of yourself. And all of these things these qualities are not things that are just, you know, natural to us. These are things that are produced in us by the Spirit of Christ within us. And against these things, Paul says, there is no law. And this is a little bit of a difficult phrase to translate. Literally in Greek, it's such things, no law. 
Such things, no law. There's two ways you can understand that. The ESV translators picked one of the two, and it's the first one here. That it means that the law is not prohibiting these things. So if you look at these things, you look at the law, they'd be in lockstep. Nothing in, in, in these, this list would in any way violate anything God said in his law. The second way to translate it is, could be that Paul is saying that these things are not produced by the law. So if you wanted to have these qualities, you're not going to get them in the law. They're not coming. Such things, no law. No law can give these kinds of things to you. These come only from God's spirit. Which one is it? I have no idea. In the end, both are true, so it kind of doesn't matter because they're in accordance with the law, and the law can't produce them. Only the spirit can. Now, what do we do with all of that? Well, I have two things for you to try to go out and then and think about this this week. First, let's recognize that this is how the spirit works, meaning I may have questions about some of the other things sometimes, but I don't have any question about this. This is surely how the Spirit works. You know, it seems to me as I just think back over, you know, so many conversations I've had with people, many of them instigated by me and my pride, uh, but um, if I think back over so many conversations I've had with people over the years, it seems that when Christians want to get together and talk about the work of the Spirit, they inevitably only talk under one of two categories, and that's under the category of spiritual gifts or the category of miracles. I, I, it's the main things, anyway, that I hear people talk about. Well, you know, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, and there's a place for those conversations. But I would just point out, you know, in regards to gifts, there's, as I showed us several weeks ago, there's a lot of questions here, a lot of things we have to think through and wrestle with and come to different answers on. And I think everybody of any camp they fall in is going to have certain questions. And so, yeah, it just makes it a little bit hard to talk about sometimes. In regards to miracles, I don't know anyone who questions that God performs miracles, but my understanding of a definition of a miracle is something unusual, something out of the ordinary, something divine that God does in a given situation, and probably not something I'm seeing on a moment-by-moment basis necessarily, not in the way I typically would define the word miracle. So, you know, if I'm asking the question or talking with someone about how the Spirit works, what I really want to get to with that person is how does the Spirit work on a, like an everyday basis? Like what is, should I be getting up in the morning expecting to see the Spirit doing in my life? And when I begin to ask that question, this is where I turn. Because I, I might be wrong about some of my other questions or my answers I've given, but I'm not wrong about this. Like I know this for a fact that this is how the Spirit works. And I would remind you again today of something that I have said multiple times now, but I keep saying it because it keeps being important and I keep feeling the need to say it to you. And that is, when you're looking in your own life, if you ever find a moment, for example, when you love somebody who is unlovable, recognize, please, that that is the Spirit's work in you. And that that work is no less significant than any other thing you might have seen somewhere else in the past or if you've ever had joy in the midst of suffering that's the spirit's work in you because that's not natural to the human heart if you've ever responded calmly and gently to a person when everything in you wanted to just explode at them right <laughs> that's the spirit's work in you and and if you have ever uh, said no to sin that I'm telling you, you have seen the Spirit's work in your life. Please, 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 Cornerstone, do not neglect the small things of God. Small things of God.
Do not despise what seems so insignificant and commonplace. Don't take for granted that some of those things are your own. Like you, sometimes we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, right? And so we go into those moments and we react some certain way and we're like, we're so wonderful. No, 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 no. If any of these things are occurring, any of these fruits in your life, remember it is God who did it, and they are no less miraculous than the greatest miracle you have ever seen. I promise you that. I promise you that. So don't despise the small things. Rather, give praise and honor and glory to the God who has placed the spirit of his Son into your heart to produce those kinds of things. They did not come from you. You may not know everything else about the Spirit, but you can know this. You can know this. 100% for sure, all day long. Second, let's recognize the holy and biblical tension that exists here in terms of how we live, all right? So I just said to you and tried to emphasize that these are the fruits of the Spirit, meaning these are things the Spirit produces in us. This is not stuff I'm just generating internally because there's nothing in me that's good and would ever want to do any of those things. So so this is clearly the Spirit's work. Does that then mean that we don't have to do anything? You know, like we can sit back and we're just kind of along for the ride of, of the Christian life and, hey, God, do whatever you want and I'll just see you at the other side kind of thing. No, no, no. I was just sharing this with someone this week. Uh, Peter's words here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Just listen to what he says here. He, he begins by saying, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now think about that opening statement. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So I look at my life, I look at all the many blessings I have, the, the, everything about my life, I look at it and go, okay, this is from God. I didn't do this. I don't get credit for this. God has done this. He has given me these things. He has put me in these places and these situations of life for my good because I know he's too good to do anything else. Everything I have for life comes from him, and everything I have for godliness comes from him too. His divine power has granted me everything, all things that pertain to godliness. So if I see anything good in me, who is it from? God, right? Okay, so we're we're together on that. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which... He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God's done it. God's done it. God's done it. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. God's done it. God's done it. God's done it. So now you go out and make every effort to do it. Like That's that's 2 Peter 1. It's all from him. You better get to work. And I love that he presents it that way, because that's, that's exactly the state in which we live. I can't produce it. The Spirit has to do it. I'm completely dependent on him for every aspect of godliness, every aspect of sanctification. It's the fruit of the Spirit. I better get to work and pursue all those things. It's not a contradiction. It's not, 
either or, you got to pick one or the, it's both and. This is how God works in our lives. God does these things, they're fruits of the Spirit, and yet we're told to pursue them, to practice them, to make every effort to add them to our lives. So as you go home this week and you think about these things, you look back over this list, here's what you do. One, you pray. And and you pray and you say, God, I, I can't do these things. There's nothing good in me, in my flesh, that will ever pursue this. Do it in me. Jesus, live your life through me. Love others through me. Have joy through me. Be patient through me. Be gentle through me. Exercise self-control through me. Jesus, I can't do it. I'm totally dependent on you. That's your prayer. And then when you say amen, you get up and you start doing all those things. You start loving and you have joy and you be patient and you be gentle and you be self-controlled and you pursue it all week long, and you constantly pray because you can't do it, and then you do it. (laughs) That's it. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. I can't do it. Jesus, do it through me. Now I'm going to get to work. And if we do these things, we go out, we have confidence that God, through his Spirit, will be at work within us, that this is the means by which he works and that we will begin to see that fruit playing itself out in all kinds of different ways because God has promised that he will work in us to make us more like Christ through his spirit. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we can't do it. We can't. We, we look at these things, these fruits, and we recognize, I, I can't imagine there's a single person in this room who doesn't read that list and feel convicted here and there and wish they were more like this or that. And yet we're not, we're not helpless in the sense that we have to just sit back and wait completely for you. We are dependent on you 100%, and yet you've told us to go out and pursue, to go do, to go practice these things, to go love. We have all of these things as commands to us. And so I pray, Lord, as we go out, that we will remember that holy tension and be thankful for it. That if we even have the desire to pursue these things, that's not from us. That is not from us. There is nothing in our heart that wants to please you. And so even that alone is evidence of your Spirit's working within us. And so Spirit, work in us this week. Work in Cornerstone. Work in families and individuals. Cause us to love. Love the world through us. Love others through us, Jesus. Be gentle with people through us. Help us be self-controlled. We We desperately need you. And I pray, Lord, that we will be active participants in every one of those things fighting, pursuing, all the while knowing you're the one working in and through us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.